Chapter 14 of The Tribulations of a Chinaman in China. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kirby Bonds. The Tribulations of a Chinaman in China by Jules Verne. Translated by Virginia Champlin. Chapter number 14 in which the visitors, without fatigue, can travel through four cities by visiting only one. The Pichili, the most western of the eighteen provinces of China, is divided into nine departments, and one of them has for its capital Chunkin Fo, that is, the city of the first order submissive to heaven, which city is Pekin. Let the reader imagine a Chinese tomahawk, with a surface of six thousand hectares, a circumference of eight leagues, whose irregular parts would exactly fill a rectangle, and he will have an idea of this mysterious Kambalu, which Marco Polo, toward the close of the thirteenth century, so curiously describes, for such is the capital of the celestial empire. In fact, Pekin comprises two distinct cities, which are separated by a large boulevard and fortified wall. One of them, the Chinese city, is a rectangular parallelogram, the other, the Tartar city, an almost perfect square. The latter encloses two other cities, the yellow city, Huangqing, and Tsenkinqing, the red or forbidden city. Formerly these cities numbered more than two million inhabitants, but emigration, caused by extreme want, has reduced this number to a million in all, Tartars and Chinese, and, added to these, about ten thousand Mussulmans, besides a certain number of Mongolians and inhabitants of Thibet, compose the floating population. The plan of these two cities, one above the other, presents almost the exact figure of an old-fashioned sideboard, whose upper part would be formed by the Chinese city, and the base by the Tartar city. Six leagues of a fortified enclosure, from forty to fifty feet in height and width, with an outside wall of brick, defended for two hundred meters on both sides by jutting towers, surround the Tartar city with a magnificent paved promenade, and throw out at their angles four enormous bastions, which have guard-houses on their platforms. The emperor, the son of heaven, as one sees, is well guarded. In the center of the Tartar city, the yellow city, with a surface of 660 hectares, with an outlet of eight gates, contains a coal mountain 300 feet high, the highest point of the capital, also a superb canal, called the Central Sea, spanned by a marble bridge, two bronze convents, a pagoda of examinations, the Pei Tha Si, a bronze temple built on a peninsula which seems as if suspended over the clear waters of the canal, the Pei Tang, an establishment of Catholic missionaries, the Imperial Pagoda, superb with its roof of sonorous bells and lapis lazuli tiles, the great temple dedicated to the ancestors of the reigning dynasty, 
the temple of spirits, the temple of the spirit of winds, the temple of the god of thunder, of the inventor of silk, of the lord of the heaven, the five pavilions of dragons, and the monastery of eternal repose. In the center of this quadrilateral is hidden the forbidden city, whose surface measures eighty hectares, and which is surrounded by the ditch of a canal spanned by seven marble bridges. It need not be explained that the reigning dynasty, being from Manchuria, the first of these three cities is principally inhabited by the same race. As for the Chinese, they are consigned to the lower part of the sideboard, outside in an annexed city. One reaches the interior of this forbidden city, which is surrounded by red brick walls, crowned by a capital of golden yellow varnished tiles, through a gate at the south called the Gate of Great Purity, which is only open to emperors and empresses. There may be found the temple of the ancestors of the Tartar dynasty, sheltered under a double roof of variegated tiles. The temples Chi and Sai, consecrated to terrestrial and celestial spirits, the palace of sovereign concord, reserved for state ceremonies and official banquets, the palace of medium concord, where are seen the pictures of the ancestors of the sons of heaven, the palace of the protecting concord, whose central hall is occupied by the imperial throne, the pavilion of Ni Ko, where the great council of the empire is held, and presided over by Prince Kong, the minister of foreign affairs, and paternal uncle of the last sovereign, the pavilion of literary flowers, where the emperor goes once a year to interpret the sacred books, the pavilion of Suchen Sin Tien, in which the sacrifices in honor of Confucius take place, the imperial library, the office of historians, the Von Ing Tien, where the wood and copper plates used in printing books are kept, shops in which court garments are prepared, the palace of celestial purity, a place for the deliberation of family affairs, the palace of the supreme terrestrial element, where the young empress dwelt, the palace of meditation, into which the sovereign retires when he is ill, the three palaces where the emperor's children are brought up, the temple of deceased relatives, the four palaces reserved for the widow and wives of Hien Fong, who died in 1861, the Chiu Siu Kong, the residence of imperial spouses, the palace of preferred goodness, intended for the official reception of court ladies, the palace of the general tranquility, a singular name for a school for the children of superior officers, the palace of purification and fasting, the palace of the purity of jade, inhabited by the princes of the blood, the temple of the protecting god of the town, a temple of Tibetan architecture, the magazine of the crown, the offices of court officials, the Lao Kong Chou, the dwelling of the eunuchs, in which there are no less than five thousand in the Red City, and to be brief, 
other palaces, amounting to forty-eight in all, can be counted within the imperial enclosure, without including the Stien Kaung Ko, pavilion of purpled light, sitting on the borders of the lake of the Yellow City, where on the 19th of June, 1873, the five ministers of the United States, Russia, Holland, England, and Prussia, were admitted to the presence of the Emperor. What ancient forum ever presented such a mass of buildings, so varied in form, and so rich in precious objects? What city or what capital of the European states could offer such a list of names? And to this enumeration must still be added the Yuan Chao Chain, the Summer Palace, situated two leagues from Peking. Having been destroyed in 1860, one can hardly find among its ruins its gardens of perfect clearness and tranquil clearness, its hill, the source of jade, and its mountain, ten thousand longevities. Surrounding the Yellow City is the Tartar City, where are located the French, English, and Russian legations. The Hospital of London Missions, the Catholic Missions of the East and North, the ancient stables of elephants, which contain but one blind in one eye, and a centenarian. There are found the bell tower, with a red roof, and a framework of green tiles, the temple of Confucius, the convent of the thousand lamas, the temple of Fakwa, the ancient observatory, with its big square tower, the yamen of the Jesuits, and the yamen of the literary people where examinations are made. There also rise the triumphal arches of the west and the east. There, carpeted with nelumbos and blue nymphias, flow the northern sea and the sea of rushes, which come from the summer palace to feed the canal of the yellow city. There one sees the palaces, where reside the princes of the blood, the ministers of finance, the ceremonies of war, of public works, of foreign relations. There also are the court of accounts, the astronomical tribunal, and the academy of medicine. All are mingled together, pell-mell in narrow streets, which are dusty in summer and wet in winter, and are generally bordered by low, wretched houses, among which looms up some great dignitary's hotel shaded by beautiful trees. Then, through the crowded avenues, one meets stray dogs, Mongolian goats laden with charcoal, palaquins with four or eight bearers, according to the rank of the dignitary, chairs, carriages with mules, and chariots. Besides, there are poor people, who, according to M. Chaozi, form an independent, vagrant population of 70,000 beggars. It is not rare, says M. P. Arlene, for some mendicant to be drowned in these streets, which are engulfed in a black offensive mud, streets cut up by pools of water where one sinks knee-deep. In many directions, the Chinese city of Pekin, which is called Vaicheng, resembles the Tartar city, but it differs, however, from it in others. Two celebrated temples occupy the southern portion the Temple of Heaven, and that of Agriculture, to which must be added the temples of the Goddess of Koenin, of the Spirit of the Earth, of Purification, of the Black Dragon, 
and of the spirits of heaven and earth. The ponds of goldfish, the monastery of Feiyaosi, the markets, the theaters, etc. This rectangular parallelogram is divided in the north and the south by an important artery, named Grand Avenue, which runs from the gate Hong Ting at the south to the Tian Gate at the north. In a transverse direction it is crossed by another longer artery, which cuts the first at right angles, and runs from the Chao Chao Gate at the east to the Quan Tzu Gate at the west. It is called the Cha Kuao Avenue, and it was at a hundred steps from its point of intersection with the Grand Avenue that the future Madame Kin Fo resided. It will be remembered that a few days after having received the letter which announced Kin Fo's ruin, the young widow received a second contradicting the first, and telling her that the seventh mood would not end before her little younger brother would return to her. We have no need to ask whether Leo counted the days and hours after that date, the 17th of May. But Kin Fo had not given her any news of himself during this wild journey, whose singular manner of travel he would under no pretext disclose. Leo had written to Shanghai, but her letters remained unanswered. One can therefore understand what her anxiety must have been when at this date, the 19th of June, no letter had reached her. So during these long days, the young woman had not left her house in the Cha Chao Avenue, where, with the great anxiety, she was waiting for news. The disagreeable Nan was not very well calculated to cheer her solitude. This old mother was more whimsical than ever, and deserved to be turned out of doors a hundred times in the course of a moon. But what endless and anxious hours before Kin Fo would reach Peking! Liao counted them, and the number seemed to her very many. If the religion of Lao Tse is the most ancient in China, if the doctrine of Confucius, promulgated about the same time, nearly five hundred years before Jesus Christ, is followed by the emperor, the literary people, and high mandarins, it is Buddhism, or the religion of Fo, which counts the greatest number of worshippers on the face of the globe, almost three hundred million. Buddhism comprises two distinct sects, one having for its ministers bonzes dressed in gray with red headgear, and the other lamas with robes and headgear of yellow. Leo was a Buddhist of the first sect, and the bonzes often saw her coming to the temple of Koan Ti Miao, which is consecrated to the goddess Konin, where she offered up prayers for her friend, burned perfumed sticks, and prostrated herself in the porch of the temple. That day she thought she would go and implore the aid of goddess Konin, and offer up still more fervent prayers, for she felt a presentment that some grave danger menaced him, whom she awaited with natural impatience. She then called the old mother, and bade her to go to the square in the Grand Avenue, and order a chair and carriers. Nan shrugged her shoulders, according to her hateful habit, and went out to execute the order. Meanwhile, the young widow, alone in her boudoir, looked sadly at the silent machine 
which no longer enabled her to hear the sweet voice of the absent one. Ah, she said, he must at least know that I have not ceased to think of him, and I wish my voice to repeat this to him on his return. And, pushing the spring which puts the phonograph wheel in motion, she spoke aloud the sweetest phrases her heart could inspire. Nan, entering suddenly, interrupted this tender monologue. The chair-bearers were awaiting Madame, who might as well have remained at home. Liao did not listen, but leaving the old mother to grumble at her pleasure, immediately went out and got into her chair, having directed the carriers to take it to Quan Ti Miao. They had only to turn around the Cha Kao Avenue at the crossroads, and ascend Grand Avenue as far as the gate of Tien. But the chair did not proceed without difficulties. Indeed, it was still the business hours, and there was at times considerable obstruction in this neighborhood, which is one of the most populous in the capital. The peddler's booths along the road gave the avenue the appearance of a fairground, with its thousand noisy sounds and bustle. Then open-air orators, public lecturers, fortune-tellers, photographers, and characterists, who had little respect for Mandarin authority, were shouting and adding their voices to the general hubbub. There was a funeral passing, with great pomp, and obstructed the travel. There is a wedding procession, less gay perhaps than the funeral, but blocking the way quite as much. In another place there was an assemblage before the yamen of a magistrate, where a complainer had just struck on the drum to ask for justice. On the Leoping rock, a malefactor was kneeling, who had received a beating, and was guarded by police soldiers, who wore the mandarinish cap with red tassels, and who carried a short spear and two sabers in the same scabbard. Farther on, several reluctant Chinamen, tied together by their braids, were being led to the station. Farther still, a poor fellow, with the left hand and right foot through a separate holes in a piece of board, went limping along with the step of some queer animal. There was also a thief shut up in a wooden box, with his head protruding through the back, who was left to public charity. Others were seen wearing yokes, like oxen. These unfortunate men were evidently seeking the most frequented localities in the hope of earning more money and to speculate on the kindness of passers-by, to the disadvantage of beggars of every kind, such as one-armed and lame men, paralytics, files of blind men led by a one-eyed man, and the thousands of varieties of real or pretended cripples who swarm in the cities of the Empire of Flowers. Leo's chair progressed but slowly, and the obstruction was greater as it approached the outer boulevard. Leo arrived there, however, and stopped inside of the bastion which defends the gate near the temple of the goddess Conin. Here she alighted from the chair, entered the temple, and kneeled at first, then bowed before the statue of the goddess. Afterwards she proceeded to a religious machine which bears the name Prayer Mill. It was a sort of reel, with eight branches, on the ends of which were little streamers ornamented with sacred text. A say stood near the machine, gravely awaiting the worshippers, and more particularly the fee for their devotions. 
Liu handed a few tiles to the servant of Buddha, to defray her part of the expenses of religion. Then, with her right hand, she took hold of the handle of the reel, and lightly turned it, after placing her left hand on her heart. No doubt the wheel did not turn rapidly enough for the prayer to be effectual, for the priest said, with a gesture of encouragement, Faster! Faster! And the young woman began to spin faster. She kept it up nearly a quarter of an hour, at the end of which time the bonsai assured her that the prayers of the supplicant would be granted. Leo again prostrated herself before the goddess Konin, left the temple, and entered her chair to return home. But as she was turning onto Grand Avenue, the bearers moved aside quickly, for soldiers were roughly clearing the streets, shops were being closed by order, and the side streets were barred by strips of blue guarded by tipaos. A lengthy cortege filled a part of the avenue, and was noisily approaching. The emperor, Quang Sin, whose name means continuation of glory, was returning to his good Tartar city, whose central gate was about to open to him. Two of the advanced guard led the way, while the rest were followed by a company of outriders, ranged in two rows, and having a baton slung across their shoulders. Next to them came a group of officers of high rank, who held a yellow parasol with ruffles, and ornamented with the dragon, which is the emblem of the emperor, as the phoenix is that of the empress. The palanquin, whose yellow silk hangings were drawn up, next appeared, and was borne by sixteen men, wearing red dresses covered with white rosettes, and closely fitting embroidered silk waistcoats. The princes of the blood, dignitaries on horses, harnessed in yellow silk with as a sign of very high rank, escorted the imperial equipage. In the palaquin was reclining the son of heaven, cousin of the emperor Tongche and nephew of Prince Kong. After the palaquin came grooms and a relay of carriers. Sooner this cortege vanished in the gates of Tien to the great satisfaction of pedestrians merchants and beggars who could now resume business. Leo's chair continued on its way, and she was set down at her house after an absence of two hours. Ah, what a surprise the good goddess Conine had prepared for the young woman! At the very moment the chair stopped, a carriage covered with dust and drawn by two mules drove up to the door, and Kin Fo, followed by Craig Fry and Sion, alighted. "'Is it you?' cried Leo, who could not believe her eyes. "'Dear little younger sister,' answered Kin Fo, "'you surely did not doubt that I would return.' Leo did not answer, but took her friend's hand, drew him into the boudoir to the little phonograph, the discreet confidant of her troubles. "'I have not for a single moment ceased to expect you, dear heart, embroidered with silken flowers,' she said." and adjusting the wheel, she pressed the spring, which set the machine in motion. Kin Fo then heard a sweet voice repeat what the loving Leo had been saying to him a few hours before his arrival. Return, little dear lovely brother, return to me. May our hearts be no longer separated as are the two stars of Orpheus and Lyra. I think only of your return. The machine was silent for a second, only a second, 
then resumed in a harsh voice this time, It is not enough to have a mistress, but one must have a master in the house, it seems. May Princess Yin strangle them both. This second voice was only too easily recognized. It was Nan's, the disagreeable old mother, continued to speak after Leo's departure. While the apparatus was in a condition to receive impression, but without her suspicion that it registered her imprudent words, Nan was dismissed that very day, and sent off without even waiting until the last days of the seventh moon. Maid servants and valets, beware of phonographs. End of chapter 14. Recording by Kirby Bonds.